0: and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is my friend, Jason Gross, co-founder and CEO of Pedal, a new kind of credit card company that has pioneered the cash score, an alternative measure of credit worthiness based on income, savings, and spending history to make credit more accessible. Founded in 2016, the company has raised over $100 million in equity and close to 500 million in debt from industry leaders including Valar Ventures, Third Prime, A4 Capital, Story Ventures, Jefferies and many more. We discussed Jason's non-traditional startup founder background, the story and inspiration behind Pedal, taking the company from 0 to 1, the state of consumer credit and open banking and what has changed over the last 5 years since launching Pedal why Petal has actively collaborated with the U.S. regulator, why Jason considers this to be extremely important, founder advice, and a lot more. I hope you enjoy this wonderful interview with Jason Gross. Jason, welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. How are you today?
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm doing well. And where are you joining us from? I'm joining from sunny Florida, relatively sunny. Oh, compared to the
0: rest of the country right now, <laughs> outstanding, outstanding, and I, I love the fact that over Zoom we've been bringing people from all over the world, really, and it feels like really a one-on-one conversation, almost like we were in the same room. But uh, well, Jason, maybe we can start by hearing a bit about your background. You know, you can maybe tell us about your journey, how you ended up co-founding Pedal.
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, maybe a little bit of a non-traditional background for a startup founder. But I, I went to law school immediately after getting my undergraduate degree. And I kind of always had my heart set on going to law school. In school, you know, I liked things like reading, writing, communications, public policy, logic. And at that time, if you were good at school, you were sort of told to become a doctor or become a lawyer and if you liked science you would become a doctor and if you liked reading and writing you would become a lawyer remember when i was in school there weren't clear opportunities to study computer science for instance which is maybe dating myself just a little bit but um went to law school and quite enjoyed law school you know it's very theoretical you kind of learn a system for how to think about really complex problems which you know, I liked. It's very different from the practice of law, however. Always had kind of an entrepreneurial bent. So even when I was in law school, I was running sort of a legal recruiting and event planning company on the side, but we had 15 people on the team and we were working with pretty substantial budgets and had a whole bunch of corporate sponsors and things. So maybe that was like my, one of my first tastes of entrepreneurship. Coming out of law school, I almost didn't practice law. I almost started a business with, with a classmate of mine in the sustainable energy space. But I was convinced by a number of people, probably my dad, principally, that I had spent all this time and all this money getting this law degree. You have to go out and actually use it or else you never really have legal skills. You only have the theory and not the practice. So I did that. And I I went to a big law firm, which is what a lot of people do coming out of law school, um, sort of a big Wall Street law firm in New York. Clients were mostly banks and financial institutions and other financial companies. But notwithstanding the fact that I got to work with great colleagues and got to work on complex things as a lawyer, I, I didn't feel that I was really creating value. I didn't feel that I was really creating a difference in the world as you know one of the thousands and thousands of lawyers working for these major banks and i felt so privileged to have the education and the opportunities that i've been given i wanted to apply those to something that was making the world better in a in a clear way and i looked around and saw that in technology and startups people were working on solving really important problems right like people were actually changing the world for the better in a number of ways and i wanted to be a part of that in some capacity and that drove my career from there, first working with startups as a lawyer and then joining startups and then founding um, and building companies.
0: No, fascinating. And when I think about the profile of an entrepreneur, and we, we've had obviously quite a few on the show, and we have a lot more MBAs than law school grads, but you're not the first one, right? Uh, when, when you think about your classmates, are there a lot that kind of followed your path?
1: I don't think so. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I become a bit of an outlier. I don't know, a few years ago, I went to one of our law school reunions, and most people are still in the practice of law, which probably means that, hey, I mean, those people were a lot more clear and focused in the way that they pursued their careers. They went to school for the thing that they're doing now, which makes a ton of sense, because that's a big commitment, right? So many of them are you know, working at law firms or they're in-house lawyers or litigators, you know, something like that. But, you know, law degrees are fairly versatile and legal skills have interesting benefits and applications in other spaces as well, including in running and building businesses. So there are some other entrepreneurs that were classmates of mine, including my co-founder, who I suppose we must mention there as well.
0: Very true. Very true. So, Let's talk about pedal then. Happy, happy to say that you know I've been a supporter and investor from the beginning, but obviously you guys have, have made it all happen. So tell us about the very beginning and, and how that you know zero to one process came about.
1: Yeah, and you you got involved with pedal so early. Yeah, right <laughs> at the point that there was really nothing there other than ideas, you know, a pitch deck. Basically. And I remember feeling on the one hand, just tremendous gratitude for friends and family that were interested in, and invested their money in, in what we were doing. But I also felt like real, real concern and responsibility associated with that because I didn't want to lose people's money, you know? I just remember those feelings back in the the early days. Maybe I'll start from the beginning and sort of the, the inspiration behind starting the company. So One of our co-founders is an academic now, in addition to uh, working as an advisor and collaborator on Petal. Um, He has an international background, came to the States to get his undergraduate degree, and then stayed in the U.S., worked, and then pursued higher-level degrees, graduate school. Notwithstanding his finances, his education, his jobs, he had trouble interfacing with the U.S. financial system because he lacked a U.S. credit history. Pretty common story that you hear from folks with international backgrounds. The U.S. financial system does not serve them well. You're sort of forced to start over from the ground up, no matter who you are or no matter what your circumstances are. He had uh, a unique experience, however, in that he developed an academic specialty in machine learning and data science, taking new, large data sets and using machine learning to apply them to decision-making and predictive modeling. And so he was actually working on some stuff that if applied in his case, might've led to him having better access to credit and financial services, but of course it wasn't being used by the industry. And so there was that really clear gap between what was possible using the technologies out there today and what was actually happening. And we saw an example of the disadvantage that could be created. But it really, we were fortunate in that the discussions about his personal experience sort of collided with this great macro research that was being put out by the federal regulators and other academics around that time about the contours of the legacy credit system and all the blind spots that exist and put people at a disadvantage. And that helped us to sort of zoom out and understand that the experience of our friend and co-founder was not unique to him or unique to just international students like him. But in fact, there's 70 million people in the United States with no credit score or with a thin credit file that are put at a distinct disadvantage. And it's all a data problem. And further, if you look at that 70 million people, it reflects folks that have been underserved over the course of history. So, Blacks and Hispanics are two times more likely to lack a credit score. Young people are served very poorly because it takes credit to build credit. Anyone new to the system is misjudged. First and second generation immigrants are more likely to lack credit scores. You see it continue on into the second generation as well. And so what we started to understand is that this is a big economic problem, right? If this huge number of people can't participate in the mainstream economy the way that everyone else can, it's also a social problem. It was a hidden driver of social inequality. And we said, wow, this is a bigger issue than people know. This is something that really needs new solutions. And that's where I think things started to really pick up momentum.
0: Now, you were building a fintech company. Fintech, at that point, was already an industry that was fast-growing. But your specific solution, the specific problem you were tackling was somewhat revolutionary and, and new also, right? You did not have a lot of... Places in the U.S. to look up to, right? So that comes with its own challenges, right? Maybe talk about some of those those challenges of, of you know creating something new.
1: Yeah, in a way, we were so naive going into this that we thought that that's what every entrepreneur is supposed to do. That if someone else had already done the thing that you have in mind, and you weren't being original enough, or you weren't being novel enough, or you were too late, of course. I think now you know, you see lots of companies that are kind of following in the footsteps of others. But we did really strike out on our own path. I'd say that for entrepreneurs that are doing that, the key is to be solving a real problem. right? We clearly were solving something that was an issue for many, many people. That provides the North Star. So you're not following any other company, but you're able to say, what do our customers need and how can we help provide better solutions for them? In financial services, it is probably even harder to do something that is new because it's a highly regulated space. It's a complex space in terms of all the partnerships that are required. And there are some really clear pathways for how things are done, right? Most things are done the same way that they've been done for the last 10 years, 20 years, sometimes longer. There's a lot of resistance to do something new. And so in this industry, we had to not only create the right solution for our customers. But we had to to socialize that solution and socialize the problem with all these other stakeholders as well, public policymakers, potential business partners, investors of different sorts. So it's quite a bit of creating a larger understanding of what we were trying to do that I think was necessary to blaze the trail.
0: And now it's been over five years since day one and, you know, a couple of years or more actually since you launched the product. How would you describe your typical customer today? Maybe talk a little bit about that and then tell us about the wider ecosystem, whether it has moved in a similar direction than Petal.
1: Sure. Our customer historically has been mostly folks that are new to the credit system. So people that are establishing and building credit. And at Petal, we provide an unsecured credit card. It's a safe, responsible credit card with all the bells and whistles that you get from a premium or a card from one of the big banks. But it's available to people who don't have any credit history at all. So our customers are pretty young. I think the most common age is 22. And so a lot of people that are just starting their independent financial life, beginning to build a score. A lot of folks that have international backgrounds, like our co-founder, and a lot of people who come from other backgrounds and circumstances where they didn't have easy access to credit. The folks who come from high-income backgrounds with parents that have good credit can often get a leg up. They can get a parent to co-sign on a credit card or something like that. But that's the minority, right? Most people are navigating the system on their own. And um, we're very much a mainstream card for folks that are beginning that journey. now. Over time, we've broadened to serve more and more of the market. And in particular, there was kind of a big expansion in what we do over the last year in that we started to provide solutions for folks that are not only building credit, but also rebuilding credit. So understanding that consumers that have had some financial hardship in the past are not well served by the big banks. The credit scoring system for those consumers, unfortunately, Works like a scarlet letter. It works in a much more binary fashion than you may believe looking at the spectrum of scores. If you have had a period of time where you had trouble paying your bills, you will have negative marks on your report and a score that is low, probably below 600, and you'll have that score for many years. And most banks are not going to work with you. If you borrow money, it's from Alternative providers at sky-high interest rates with fees and all the other things that come along with that. But we know that the circumstances of consumers are far more complicated, that there's far more important detail than just that scarlet letter of the credit score that is not perfect. Oftentimes, something completely out of someone's control is what results in a period of financial hardship like COVID-19, as an example, right? Tens of millions of people are out of work, are having reduced hours or unexpected medical bills right now. And so we said, with more data, a more holistic process, we can better understand the circumstances of these consumers and give them a much better product. Because a lot of people, hopefully, will be recovering from the the effects of the pandemic over the next few years, will be going back to work, putting their financial lives back in order, But the banks are not set up to work with those consumers. And we think that we are. So we've really broadened now to provide solutions for the 150 million Americans that have less than prime credit scores or no credit scores at all.
0: Yeah, I can think of people who've missed rent, right? Not for fault of their own. And and those, scores are also being affected, right? Sounds like big banks in particular haven't really change their ways. Maybe talk about that. Is the industry paying attention to what Petal is doing and then maybe adjusting a little bit?
1: Yeah, that's the understatement of the century, right? Um, (laughs) No, look, I mean, the banking system has really, really consolidated over the past few decades. And most consumers are served by these gigantic financial institutions. And it's really hard to turn a battleship. It's really difficult to make even a small change in such large organizations. And also, when you think about the pace of change inside of large legacy institutions, oftentimes they're derided for being slow or risk averse. But in a way, if you have a business that's very large, profitable, you've been sustaining for a very long period of time, you start to build scaffolding around that business to protect it. And some of that friction associated with trying to change something In a lot of legacy, businesses can be a feature as often as it can be a bug. So there's not a great incentive to change what's been done. But that, of course, means that as we introduce new technologies, new capabilities, and so on, there are opportunities for new providers to build ground up and do things differently. So the credit system has not changed much in decades. That's the reality of it. The basic approach to credit scoring was devised 70 years ago. It became popularized and widely adopted 30 to 40 years ago, and little has changed. Marginal things have changed over time. But over that period, there has been an absolute revolution in the possibilities of technology, access to data, computing power, all the things that have changed basically every aspect of our lives have the potential to change financial services. And it's important that some of these things are adopted. Because of those underlying issues that I mentioned earlier, because this mainstream system, which was the best we could do 40 or 50 years ago, has not done a great job for the population as a whole, has left a lot of people out in the cold. We almost have an obligation now to do what's possible to make it better.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's the past, but you're building for the future, right? And when you think about your vision of credit scores and access to credit going forward, What comes to mind? What do you really hope to see over the next uh, few years?
1: Sure. So here's our little looking glass into the future. And it is almost embarrassingly simple and intuitive, but also not at all what we have today. The grand vision, which really is not grand at all, is as simple as this. When you're being evaluated for your access to a financial product, whether it's a credit card, or an auto loan or a mortgage or insurance or whatever it may be, when a financial institution is making an assessment of your financial position, in the modern world, we should take your full financial picture into account. That's it. It should be a comprehensive, holistic, up-to-date view of where you are financially and whether you can afford the thing that you're applying for. That's it. But that is not what's done. Anywhere. I don't think that you could say that that happens, certainly not in any small dollar consumer lending context, right? As loans get bigger and bigger and bigger, the process becomes more comprehensive and there's more data that goes into the underwriting process. But for mainstream consumers, we're using these partial, at best, pictures of their financial life. Your credit score is just the liability side of your balance sheet, it's missing your assets. It's missing your cash flows and your income. It's missing entirely for tens of millions of people. So we believe that credit scores will be holistic, comprehensive, up to date, and will be real time and automated across the world.
0: Jason, that is super interesting, first of all. (laughs) Then, when you think about data, right, and getting a holistic picture, that involves pulling data from multiple sources, right? And first thing that comes to mind is open banking, right? Which is kind of the spirit behind it, right? To democratize access of data. Is this something you spend a lot of time thinking about? I know you have some thoughts around open banking. Yes, this is
1: the key. This is the key. And the data ultimately, we believe, must be in the control of the consumer that it describes. That's a big difference from the way this has worked in the past. Credit bureaus collect information about you without your permission, whether you like it or not. And then they make money by selling that information to advertisers and financial companies and so on. That's how the legacy system has worked. But a modern view of data ownership, data sovereignty, tells us that consumers have to have the ultimate control. They have to have the ultimate say into who has access to their data, who doesn't, what they want to share, how they want to share it, and so on. Open banking is this idea of data sovereignty as applied to the financial space. And so what open banking means for folks that are less familiar is that the information about your financial life that exists inside of your bank, for instance, So it would be your bank statements. That information, although held by the bank, is your property, belongs to you, and you should have the ability to pick that information up and move it somewhere else if you want to. That's the simple notion. And the analog idea would be open banking is your ability to walk into your bank, ask for your bank statements and records, stuff them in a shoebox, and then bring them over to another bank. It's as simple as that. The technology layer is automating that whole process, right? Is making it so that you can do that in real time, digitally, and share the information from place to place. But that information is critical to you being served well as a consumer. So what we do at Pedal is we translate that information into credit history. We say we can take your banking history and use that to establish your creditworthiness. But that information can be used to customize financial products and services for your needs, to give you insight and control over what's going on in your financial life, to identify you as a consumer in an online context. There's so many different potential use cases that if that data were just locked up inside of one bank, you would never be able to switch. You would never have choice in the marketplace. So open banking says, let's democratize access to all this information and put the control firmly in the hands of the consumer.
0: Now, Jason, you are one of many players, you know, pushing the revolution of open banking, but of course you need to collaborate, right? With players in the industry, but also with the regulator, right? I mean, there there are examples around the world where open banking has been driven by the regulator. I mean, thinking of the UK or places like Brazil. Talk a little bit about your relationship with the regulator and with multiple branches of the U.S. government that you have.
1: Absolutely. And open banking is as much an innovation in public policy as it is an innovation in technology. But both pieces, I think, are absolutely critical. And so right now, the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in the United States, is considering comments that were submitted by stakeholders um, about U.S. open banking, essentially. It goes back to a provision of Dodd-Frank 1033. So um, public policymakers are absolutely at the table in creating this framework and how it should work. We have engaged quite a bit with folks in the public policy space from the very beginning. And, you know, when you think about the mission or the goal of a regulator, some folks think, regulators are just there to slap people on the wrist and tell you all the things that you can't do. But regulators exist, yes, to ensure that the consumer finance laws are followed are enforced, but also to ensure that there is an even and fair financial playing field, that consumers have choice and that there's competition in the marketplace, and that consumers have access, fair access to the financial system. So our mission around expanding access to financial services it's actually very well aligned with the policy objectives of many of the different regulatory bodies that we have in the United States. And so we found that we had similar goals, right? But um, regulators don't provide financial services themselves, so they can't directly provide that access. They need to provide the right environment, the right ecosystem for consumers to have access to credit. This was unorthodox, but before we even pitched angel investors about investing in pedal. We went down to Washington, D.C., and we pitched regulators about what we were thinking, what we wanted to build. But I remember in one of those early meetings, we were fortunate to get an audience with a group of uh, federal financial regulators, and we walked them through our whole business plan and the way that the product would work and so on, introduced our team. And at the end of the presentation, one of the folks in the room said, well, first of all, we really appreciate you coming in and sharing all this information with us. But my first question is, why did you do that? <laughs> and and I think that, right, that showed that there's a real communications gap. And uh, there's not enough conversation going on between new technology companies, new fintech companies, and regulators and policymakers. And like I said earlier, The whole ecosystem needs to work in harmony in order to do anything new. So from the beginning, we've engaged in the conversation around consumer financial laws and regulations, and we've been very outspoken, I think, about um, the idea of open banking, not just because of what it means for our business, but because of what we think it means for the larger financial services industry and access for underserved consumers.
0: So from that meeting where pedal was probably less than five people, to today, how many team members at pedal today? We're over a hundred now. Over a hundred—that's that's incredible. I'm very happy for that. And you obviously have been going at it for a while, several years. You know, this is a show that is popular amongst a lot of aspiring founders, or also current builders, right? Obviously, throughout this whole interview, you've You've talked about a lot of lessons of entrepreneurship, but we still love to dig in a little bit more, you know on your reflections and maybe some advice for entrepreneurs.
1: yeah. first of all, sometimes I'm doing something like this, it feels like the days are very long, and you know you're working very, very hard. But in another perspective, it feels like everything has happened in a flash. And so it really, to me, doesn't feel like too long ago when we were that team of five pitching whoever would, would listen to us. And so it's hard for me to believe that I'm in a position to give advice, but I will say that I've benefited tremendously from the advice of others that have walked this path. And so maybe the first piece of advice I would give is to seek out that advice and be open to it and um, make sure to always keep a healthy sense of humility, a healthy sense of what you don't know and uh, curiosity to learn more and to seek out differing points of view, to pressure test your own ideals. There was something I said earlier as well, which I would underscore here because it's something that I see that can cause trouble for aspiring entrepreneurs. It's very simple. Make sure that you're solving a real problem. Make sure that you're solving a real problem, not just creating something because you can or because the technology is cool or whatever it is, but talk to your users, talk to your customers, figure out what those pain points are, and solve that problem. Now, it doesn't matter necessarily. There's not a given solution in mind. You can pivot the solution. But the problem, if it's real, should remain constant. right? There were a variety of ways that we thought about helping folks to establish and build credit, and that's all right. You'll go through a journey, honestly, no matter where you are in building a business, There will be twists and turns along the way and new ideas and opportunities that come up. But you have to have that North Star of the problem that you're seeking to solve. And if it's a problem that's real, that a lot of folks experience, or that resonates with a lot of people, or is felt really acutely by folks, not only will that help you in guiding your activities and your strategy, but it'll rally other people to your cause. You'll find other folks that care about solving that problem, right? And and those are the people that you want. By your side, especially in the early days.
0: Amazing, amazing. Now, Jason, I want to thank you again for joining us. Before we let you go, we always love to ask our guests uh, a little bit about your personal side. So, you know, I know you have got uh, a few hobbies. Uh, so, we'd we'll love to hear about that. You know, your time outside of pedal. <laughs> well,
1: this will be the least interesting part of the podcast. So everyone can tune out now. No. Um, You know, this has changed a lot over the past year. So um, I'm typically based in New York, and prior to COVID, I think I would take advantage of a lot of the great things about New York City, right? The restaurants, the museums, the concerts, the theater. You know, I actually never realized until this past year how many of my hobbies included crowds of people, (laughs) right? Right? But most of those things have been off limits or, you know, substantially harder to do over the last year. So through COVID, like a lot of people, I've sort of rediscovered the outdoors. I've, I've tried to get outside more, biking, hiking, other exercise and stuff like that. And then I've actually taken up some creative, more independent hobbies that I just could never do in New York City, like playing music and painting and so on. Some of those things are maybe a silver lining on this on this period of time but i'm hoping to go back to the restaurants and concerts and so on in the not too distant future
0: it's gonna have to take some some getting used to for all of us to go back and and yes. you know hang out with large crowds uh but you know now now that i know this i hope to listen to those tunes on spotify i'm sure so <laughs> you know send them along really don't cool hold them. your breath <laughs> good stuff. Well, Jason, thank you again. Fascinating stuff. Honored that you joined us and I'm looking forward to the next five plus many, many years uh, of Pedal.
1: Great chatting with you. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Warton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.